when I do planning for my younger clients, I do a plan and it sure it has like a projection of how their life's going to unfold. But I, I make sure to tell them like, it's planning, not plans. I say, what you're trying to do is give future you options so that when you come back to me in five years or in 10 years, you've advanced, you've grown as a person, you're going to have different goals. Absolutely, you're going to have different goals. And we have to course correct. We have to adapt to you know new environment and know that like 50-year-old Rob's going to be different than 40-year-old Rob and he's going to have different goals. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast. I am delighted you are here for another fascinating conversation. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Rob Ingen. Rob is an advice-only financial planner and the voice behind the award-winning Boomer Neko personal finance blog. For many of us in Canada, we have read one, two, or several of Rob's articles in the past. He has been a consistent voice in the blogging world, and we really get into the origin story behind how and why he started this blog. Rob has been writing about personal finances since 2010 for publications such as Toronto Star and Money Sense, and as I mentioned earlier, his own website, which we talk about why he started this blog as really a reflection of his own journey, trying to figure out what money meant to him. Over the time, Rob has attracted over 15 million page views and has a large monthly email subscriber list as people really relate to Rob's down-to-earth writing style. Rob calls himself, and you'll hear this, and stories around why he calls himself a revenge traveler. Rob is enjoying his life with his two kids and his wife in Lethbridge, Alberta. This conversation really focused on Rob, his story navigating money, his human experience with money. Rob agreed to do a few exercises that really helped spark our thinking in how we relate to money. And this conversation was an exploration for myself and Rob as we explored the nooks and crannies of his relationship with money and what money really means to him. Rob, thank you so much for such an insightful conversation. For all of you listening, I highly recommend you go check out Rob's website. The links are in the show notes and subscribe to his newsletter. He has some wonderful articles that he shares. If you've been enjoying this podcast, as the year comes to end, I have to say thank you so much for listening. If you've been enjoying, you can support the show in one of two ways. Or I guess you can do both. You can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, or you can share this episode with a family, friend, or colleague. And be sure to stay until the end as Roothub joins us to provide Rob with his own instant anthem. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Rob Ingen. Change making money. Change making money. Change making money. Money's making 
Rob, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, I'm glad that this worked out. I recall at the beginning of September, we had a couple conversations at a conference here in Edmonton. I've always seen your blog, read bits and pieces of your blog, and appreciate it. I feel like it's a down-to-earth style of writing that you have, very relatable. And when I met you in person, I thought, oh, wow, the guy writing the blog is really relatable too. So I think it's wonderful when we can read people's writings who are writing it with a good intentions and not just trying to, say, sell something. So that's not a question. That's more or less, I appreciate that about you and your work. Thanks so much. I thought we would, we would start with the blog, this conversation, where maybe we can go back to way long ago. So it must seem, I believe it was around August 2010 when you had your first blog post. Right. I understand yeah. you were a new parent. For those of us who have been a new parent, this is a busy, challenging time. What was happening that caused you, influenced you, motivated you to write a personal finance blog at that point in your life? Yeah, so it was a, an interesting time because they had just changed careers the year before. And my wife had a, uh, an MS, uh, multiple sclerosis diagnosis you know, the year before as well. And then we had our first child in 2009. And so there was a lot going on. And with that came sort of changing of finances, you know, sort of needing to get our stuff together, uh, learning a new job that came with a pension instead of, uh, you know, like maybe you know, like the private sector is more like a bonus type structure, opening our ESPs for, for, for our uh, oldest child. So there's just a lot happening. And so what I actually found myself doing was actually reading personal finance blogs. And so back at that time in 2009, there was like Million Dollar Journey and Preet Banerjee's uh, Where Does All My Money Go? There's a few blogs like that. And I'm just pouring through the archives. And what really struck me one day, just kind of out of the blue, is like I've always enjoyed writing. And I had all these thoughts and these sort of money moves that I had to start making. And I thought, you know what, why don't I start my own blog and sort of diarize this? talk about my own uh, journey and, and mistakes I've made along the way that maybe hopefully others could learn from and just happened to, you know, get lucky and, and sort of find an audience there that, that was listening. It really just sort of took off and grew from there. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, you know, you use the word get lucky to find an audience. And I think it, <laughs> I personally, my observation is going back to what we, what I was saying at start, you have a tone that's very relatable. As a reader, I feel like there's definitely, yeah, luck, but I think there's a lot of also just the way you hold yourself on the blog. And when I was going through the early blog post preparing for today, I started to recognize that there was a lot of future-oriented conversations. There's conversations or blog posts around my short-term, medium, long-term goals, what financial or sorry, what retirement's gonna look like, which is very typical for financial planning. Now that you have had how many people stop by the, the blog? Oh, it's been millions of page views over the years. Um, and then I maintain a, like an email subscriber, sort of my longtime loyal readers uh, subscriber database of about 10,000 people. So yeah, pretty, pretty big audience. Okay, so you got this big audience that are stopping by. You're talking about these future-oriented goals, financial planning. What do you think was really resonating with them? I keep saying it's your tone, it's your tonality, it's the way of being. What do you think resonated with them that, to use your words, helped you get lucky? Well, uh, one thing that uh, probably helped a lot was that my writing got at least recognized by an editor at the Toronto Star. 
And he invited me to write for a blog that they were starting called Moneyville. And it was like two to four times a week, like pretty prolific posting schedule, just short, you know, real blog, personal like writings for them. And oftentimes that would get linked to, and, and fed into the star.com and, and their big audience. And so because I got to have like a byline in there linking back to my blog, started to get a bigger readership sort of from those posts. So that helped for sure. But I think what was resonating were those personal stories, right? I always say the most uh, popular posts on the, you know, the Globe and Mail, Financial Post and the Star are those financial facelifts where you can dig into someone's personal story and and sure they bring out, you know, some of the the hate followers or so, you know, someone that says, "Hey, you know, these people haven't made like what are they complaining about? What do they need advice for?" But when you can tell, like when you can really reveal something, whether it's a mistake you made or your thought process behind a financial decision, it sort of reveals a vulnerability there. And I think it re- you, a lot of people relate to that, right? It's not just some you know expert on their soapbox preaching what you should be doing, but it's real people dealing with real situations that are often messy and unknown. And sometimes there's not a right answer to it. So you talk about that process and then you hear people in the comments and there's some really smart readers in the comments that I learned a lot from over the years as well, who can maybe point to, you know, help you look at something through a different lens. So the the whole process over the last, you know, 14 years or so has been really eye-opening and I've learned a ton about myself and just about how people make decisions and I might have come to it, uh, Sean, from, uh, you know, this is the right way to do things uh, perspective in, in, in a lot of my older posts. And it came to realize as I started interacting with more what I call regular people that, you know, there is no one size fits all answer. We all have, you know, the money psychology, the different, you know, lenses that we view money with. And, you know, it's not so cut and dried for a lot of people. So really starting to, you know, help that helps me in my planning now because I can really relate to people and help and meet them where they're at. So if you want to nerd out about ETFs and, and factors and different things like that, we can do that. But if you just want, you know, some help with some basic personal finance education, I think I get a lot of that feedback from my readers too, that, you know, you really have a way to, uh, or a knack for explaining things in a, you know, breaking down complex topics into something that I can understand, which uh, I think uh, helps in terms of growing that audience. Thank you. There's so many really interesting points you put there. And I think the one word that I feel helps me understand how you got, again, I'm using air quotes, cut lucky is the relatable, that word relatable. That's what I get when I, I read those posts, like you talked about through stories, storytelling is relatable. The manner that you talk on the blog is not like do this or else. It's it's a conversation, it feels like. And I, I like how it is a documentation of your journey, which in a, the world of money, often, you know, we feel like, oh, we don't know enough or we don't have enough. And it can be intimidating to read these big, call them many designations and high profile individuals who are speaking to individuals with millions of dollars. We feel insignificant, where I feel like you're speaking to the mass majority of Canadians. And obviously your content is relating to them with the millions of page views. So, Well, Sean, that was just to uh, elaborate on that. Well, that was one thing I've noticed as well in, again, the more mainstream, you know, uh, news media were whenever they have an expert sort of talking, it was always like, this strategy will save you, you know, so much money in taxes and whatnot. And then the examples they use is always like the highest tax bracket, 
You know what I mean? Just uh, something that is for ultra high net worth or high net worth people. And really what's missing, and I think that's what sort of draws the ire of the commenters on those sites is, uh, is something more relatable to people that have more typical problems of the average Canadian. And so that's what I try to bring across. Even though my own money journey has changed, I really try to speak to the mass audience that I think really needs that financial literacy advice. You know, even though some of those strategies sound really cool, they don't apply to you. So, you know, that's not really useful, right? To uh, Mm -hmm. talk about some ultra high net worth strategy. Yeah. And, you know, you talked about how at first you might have had a, I guess, a perspective that you really believed in. And I, I want to get this later in the conversation, but I, I really noticed just through the progression of your blogs that you've seemed to detach from these desired outcomes of who Robert, our echo, should be writing like. To use a word you said is meet people where they're at. And I feel like that's a testament to why more and more people keep coming to see your writing. So I think it, I think it's just, it's fantastic the way you you approach this. Now, for myself, for listeners, maybe some of your readers, there's there's a man behind this blog called Rob. And you, I'll call it, played with some of the exercises that uh, I sent over to you. They're designed from other people who have tried to help us reflect on our own money journeys. Because when we're in that journey, it's really hard to to recognize the journey in itself. So this idea of reflection helps us out. And I'm speaking to a man who's been reflecting for 14 years on his blog. So you understand the power of reflecting. Yes. But I want to start with financial flashpoints. These are emotionally driven events, situations that happen at some point in our childhood or early adulthood that leave a memorable memory around money that influence how we think, feel, and believe about money. This term, financial flashpoints, was coined by Dr. Brad Klontz. When you look back at your journey, can you recall any memorable flashpoints, financial flashpoints that may have led up to you starting that blog? I want to start to the origin of the blog. Yeah, really interesting. Like it was a fun exercise to go through and uh, something that I maybe haven't done as much of is reflect all the way back to uh, childhood. But I do remember, you know, my my mom worked in in finance. She, She worked at a bank kind of worked your way up to a uh, you know, financial planner. Uh, but my dad was sort of bouncing around jobs and uh, was often in between jobs. And so I do remember vividly, you know, one Christmas there was, uh, you know, I think we had to go to a food bank where, you know, I, I know we, we donate uh, every year to one of the, you know, kind of the angel tree type thing where you're giving a gift to families in need. But, you know, I, 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 we were one of those families at one point, at least for one Christmas. And so I remember that, right? And I remember the vulnerability there. And then I do remember I have early money memories of my mom worked at, at TD. So we got one of those, um, they called it green machines, they're ATMs. And it was a piggy bank, like a green machine piggy bank where you could put your loonies and quarters and you know dimes and nickels. And that was my, that's my introduction to saving, right? And put my allowance in there and, and watch those stack up and then roll up my quarters and take it to the bank and, and deposit it. And so that was my introduction to saving, which I think, you know, sort of deep down fostered something that would transpire later on. You know, I went off to university and kind of, you know, blew some money and, and got into debt like a lot of people do. And my sort of come to Jesus moment, which was, um, you know, a credit card that had been maxed out and, and, and hadn't paid that, hadn't paid that bill in a few months. And 
And so, of course, the collections are calling and they want us to do something with it. And it just shook me, really. Like, I don't know what it, what it was about that phone call, but it really shook me. You know, I'm in my early 20s, right? And I haven't really got things figured out. But uh, that's the time I started to take things seriously. And, you know, from there, sort of advanced my, my career and uh, started putting away some money. was really fortunate to have a, a mentor. I, I was working in the hotel industry then. And the manager I had at the time was really interested in, in personal finance. And he talked to me a lot about, about that. And so we, we, we had those conversations where, you know, now I was putting away money in my RSP and taking advantage of the, the company's matching program and, and things like that. And so I think that sort of led me to finally, you know, take control because in between there, where I was sort of struggling and had the credit card debt, it was always just, I feel like a lot of Canadians think this way. A lot of people in general think this way. It's always like, okay, well, I'll just wait until, I'll just wait until I get that raise. I'll just wait until the tax refund comes. There's always just something that's going to bail me out. And uh, oftentimes that never comes, right? Or, or it doesn't bail you out. You just crawl right back into the hole you were digging. So those shaped uh, me a lot, but and, and in a lot of ways uh, from, a, from a fear perspective, right? Because I didn't want to go back to that, you know, if I think now, I didn't want to go back to that, you know, going to the food bank and getting Christmas presents gifted to, to you from, you know, donors. There was a fear though that things would unfold that way if, if I didn't sort of get my stuff together. So then I started taking things seriously and putting things away. And I think I was at a point where I felt like I was in a pretty good place. And that's when the blog started. Certainly didn't have, I probably didn't even have a $100,000 sort of net worth at that point. It would have been 30, 31 when the blog started. But I was on a path, right? That you could sort of see if I could just keep at the, keep the career going, keep the savings habits going, that uh, things were going to turn out pretty well. So I don't know, that's... It was interesting sort of going back through that uh, exercise because you, you know, you often forget where you came from and, and where you have some of those, uh, some of those thoughts and uh, those money lenses that you view through, things through. Sometimes, Sean, still, I, I have to catch, catch myself because we're in a totally different financial place now than we were before. But I still find myself at some points, you know, when, when we have an extra, that extra Amazon purchase or we had a particularly spendy month or that it seemed to be spendy thinking like, oh, can we really afford this, right? And I know that that's my past self mm-hmm. talking, right? That I didn't want to go back to this place. But even though we're in a totally different place right now, where like a $20 purchase is not going to, you know, we're not going to trip and fall and, and, and end up uh, bankrupt, right? Thank you for that. I, I really appreciate you you sharing just some of your background because like you've said, it really does influence how we're acting today and how we continue to act. And I think I appreciate you pointing that part out is because I, I don't, I think it's very challenging to fully remove ourselves from a part of ourselves. I recall from part of your, your journaling you, you sent over to me, you talked about an outdated belief. Maybe can you just speak to this idea of, I like how you worded that, this outdated belief. What did you mean by using that word? Sort of what I talked about with the Amazon purchases or getting upset about some small purchases adding up, even though it has what would have affected our budget 15 years ago as, you know, very little bearing on it now. I think we go through seasons of life where, you know, we're maybe more frugal or maybe a little more spendy or maybe a little more adventurous, whatever the, the case is. But 
sometimes we hold on to those beliefs, maybe even just deep down internally, right? So while our spending has certainly changed at this point, right? We make a good income, we have a successful business, and we want to travel and, and, and have great experiences with our, with our kids. There's still deep down in there, I, I call them this outdated belief that, you know, we can't afford this. Or, you know, maybe it's that imposter syndrome that kicks in that says things are good now, but like, will they always be this way? And if you keep, you know, spending at this level, what happens if you, you know, your business uh, fails? It's something that's sort of always in the back of your head that's uh, pulling you back to that time in your 20s or that time in your childhood, right? Even though that is not your reality right now. And mm-hmm. I'm a financial planner. And so I believe me, I've, I've, you know, stress tested the heck out of our, you know, our, our situation and, and our ambitions and our goals to make sure they're, they're reasonable. You still nagging deep down there. There's these, um, what I call them, these outdated beliefs that this isn't real, right? And, you know, someone sort of over your shoulder telling you that, you know, you're not good enough or you can't afford that instead of like really being present in the moment to say like, no, here's where we are, being proud of what you've accomplished and wanting to, you know, enjoy sort of what you've built to this point. Mm -hmm. Your word choice of over your shoulder really makes me think about this idea that, that you did also write about is this inner money critic. And this exercise came from echoing advice from many psychologists, including this one specifically, Dr. Rick Hansen, who urges us to confront that outdated belief or that outdated voice that's, again, a word you used, which spoke to me because mine's doing the same thing right now. I've, I could give you 25 million pages long of mine. But anyways, but this outdated voice from this inner critic. And when you look at how much we attach stories to our money, these inner critics really latch on to our, our money stories. And Hansen, like I said, many other psychologists really see benefit in just recognizing that where that outdated belief is coming from. A lot of times, you know, it was helpful in the past, but to use a word, it's still there and outdated. So when we think of this in a money context, can you share with the audience who Crank is? Yeah, Crank or Cranky or Mr. Crank or something like that. It's sort of a name I come up with for that inner money critic. And it is that person that's sort of on your shoulder saying, not even whispering, they're, you know, being belligerent about it that you can't afford this or you're not good enough. This is all, you know, going to go away soon. You're going to have to go back to a corporate day job and, you know, stop living the life that you're living now. Almost trying to say that this is what you're experiencing right now isn't real. Right, what you experienced as a child, or what you experienced in your twenties—that was real. That's your reality, and so that person is the one that's there. And when I say there's some, when I would say there's something deep down that's telling me to be a little bit more frugal, or you know, questioning things that I'm that I'm doing financially, it's that, or it's this inner critic, it's this Mister Crank, you know, just telling me I'm not good enough or I can't do this. And so you sort of have to put Mister Crank in his place and say this is not our reality anymore. I am good enough and what we built is totally sustainable and it's different from, we're in a different place than we were in our 20s or I'm in a different place when I grew up, right? I try to remember that for my own children, right? Because I know these these stories that stick with you from an early age. And so like I remember, you know, the odd time that we could go out to a restaurant, it would be a very basic restaurant and you did not order a, a, a pop, you didn't order anything fancy like that, you got water. 
right? And contrast that to that or to that when we, uh, our family, we went to Italy in uh, April in 2022 and we're sitting in, in front of the Duomo on a beautiful April day, you know, a patio with the most spectacular view. And of course, right, like a Coke Zero that the kids wanted was like 10 euro, right? But you're in front of the Duomo in Florence, right? Like, so, you know, they had that experience. And then I wonder now how that will shape them, right? Could it lead to, you know, maybe overspending or not thinking too much about about money? Sorry, did did the Coke Zero get bought or no? It did. Yeah, it It absolutely did. did. It got got bought along with a couple Aperol spritzes that were probably 12 or 14 euro, right? But it was that time. When are we ever going to be here again at this moment on this beautiful uh, day and actually have an opening, right? Because this patio is realms packed. So that's one of the experiences we had. Totally contrast from my own childhood where, you know, we wouldn't dare ask for anything but water. And that's if we did go out to a restaurant. I really appreciate this example. And I think it's two areas that I just want to ask you about is, number one, when we look at these inner money critics, when we realize and recognize them and learn to dance with them, you can, in a way, thank them for helping you set up your life where you can actually go there because of the lessons. And sure, at one point you have to say, okay, I got this figure. <laughs> Bug off. Yeah. I'll see you when you come around next time, but I got this. But it allows us to then realize that, hey, okay, this is outdated. And it, it lets us to use something you keep saying is have more control. Did you feel at some point, I'm sure there's not a specific date and point, but where you started to learn how to dance with Mr. Cr- or with Crank so that you can, in other situations as well, buy that uh, Coke? Yeah, I think this is still pretty recent. It's uh, recently evolving. It's probably since, uh, you know, since the pandemic and having sort of our, we had a bunch of travel booked, right? So this is, I just, I just quit my job. We're just doing the, my wife and I are just doing the financial planning and I am doing some writing full time. And then the pandemic hit, we had all this travel book that got canceled. And so instead of sort of wallowing in that, we bought a hot tub. Right. Like we're like, okay, well, let's make the most of this and, you know, sort of like set up our backyard so that we can have like, you know, the best, you know, experience over the spring and summer because we know we're not going to get to go to Italy or go, go to the UK as we had planned. That was a big deal because, you know, hot tubs were, you know, at that time pretty expensive and they were in demand. And we had never done anything like that or that kind of a splurge before. So that was big. And I've always been, Sean, like that frugality that Mr. Crank has always been there, sort of like trying to keep me honest in a sense of like, I don't know, I'll, I'll use an example. Like we could have afforded a, a new car at one point. I remember, I remember again, just thinking about these flashpoint or flashbulb moments. We took a trip to BC. I was in this uh, black Hyundai Elantra that had no air conditioning. And it was one of those 40 degree days or kind of weeks in, in BC. And we're driving through and we're camping and on the way back, we were just dying in this car all the way back home. I knew we had the cash flow, but I was addicted to kind of watching the bank account balance grow a little bit. And finally, after it was that trip, that was just like, okay, like I think it was like the next week we went and got ourselves a new vehicle and, you know, a $400 payment or whatever, because, you know, we just couldn't stand that anymore. And so to go back to like the hot tub analogy, I think, you know, if I still had that mentality, we would have pushed that off. Oh, let's just wait a year, then we'll do our trips. 
was that point that I started to sort of open up again. Uh, the business was doing well. It wasn't like, you know, COVID shut things down. I'm, I work online and people were getting accustomed to Zoom. So it was actually really good for business. So things were going really well from a business perspective and uh, felt like we could, uh, we could afford it. Right. And so that has just sort of, I've just sort of kept pushing the envelope with that and trying to dance, as you said, with, with Crank or the inner critic and, and say, you know what, that was a different time in our lives. And here's our new reality now. And we've got this, right? I've looked at all the angles and, and this is a smart decision for us. And we're going to enjoy this experience. Same when it comes to travel. Couldn't, still couldn't do anything in 2021. So in 2022, we had a revenge travel year, I called it. So we did that trip to Italy. We did the trip to UK. And then we went to Paris in October and my wife and my anniversary. And just amazing, right? But like, you know, pretty indulgent if you think about, you know, going to Europe three times in a, in a year. But it was all this sort of pent up, you know, demand from trips canceled over the pandemic. And of course, we had, you know, points refunded and things like that. So it wasn't like, you know, we, we forked out a ton of money for it, but, you know, it was a really enjoyable experience. And I don't think I would have done that, you know, five years ago. So yeah, it's, it, you're right. It's this constant dance between, you know, this past you and this inner critic and your reality and sort of what you envision for the future, how you envision this life unfolding. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to put a more positive outlook on it rather than, you know, constantly thinking, you know, you can't afford that or just keep tucking away money for later for someday maybes. So interesting. And I go back to a point that we were kind of chatting about earlier about not being too attached to certain outcomes. And if I go back to the Rob writing the first few years of the blog, lots of great, great personal finance information about savings tips, goals that if I recall, were really focused on actually one of them, I think it specifically said how much you'll have in your RSP, TFSA, and pension when you're 55. And, and it's great because we have to be pointed in the right direction, but very, very financial focused. And now I can hear this spending in Europe. And I think if someone read your first five years, they wouldn't think you would be the same person <laughs> talking about spending on trips in Europe. Yeah. And we talk about this thing called being rich. And I've heard you talk about a rich life a phrase that I've heard you say, people call it a good life. How, if anything at all, does this revenge travel trip add to this rich life, even though it's taken away money from the bank account that you were, in your words, again, addicted to seeing grow? Well, you know, part of it is just, you know, I think of my wife and her health and we don't know how, you know, how long she has really healthy years left dealing with uh, an illness like MS. I think of my own kids and the experiences that they can enjoy outside of Lethbridge, right? Like my, I didn't do any traveling as a kid. I think we did one trip to Hawaii and it was like a dream trip. Like we, this was like a one-time thing. It was 14, I think, which was great, right? But everything else was just like, you know, go camping or we went to Kelowna. I grew up in Calgary. So, you know, that's about as far as we went. I never really went on a plane outside of that. And my wife grew up here in Southern Alberta and all the same thing where I went camping, but never had got on a plane until we met. And so we just wanted a little more for our kids, right? We had the ability to sort of carve out some money in a budget for travel. I hate, there's one thing I hate, Sean, it's spending money on cars. I wish I have a car and I wish I could just drive it into the, as long as possible and, uh, into the ground so that I don't have a car payment. 
I know that's not a reality, but you know, not having to fork out eight or ten thousand dollars a year on a car payment or two allows you to maybe uh, recategorize some of that spending or reallocate it, right? So, so travel is what we chose, and we started small. We took a trip out to the west coast to Victoria, and then around to Vancouver Island to uh, Port Renfrew, and wonderful time there. My kids were like nine and six. That was their first plane trip. And then we got them uh, for our big trip. What we did was we went to the UK in 2019 and went for 32 days. And it was wonderful, like life-changing. And the experiences that they had there with the culture and everything. And my oldest is like a huge history nerd. So she was in every museum and all the castles and ruins, like eyes lighting up. Right. So, you know, we're like, yeah, we need to do more of this. And so, so, yeah, it just became a priority for us. And then the other thing, as I said, this, this journey is starting to more recently unfolding of me sort of opening up the spending taps a little bit more to enjoy this so-called rich life is actually shaped by the work I do with my financial planning clients. Right. I do work with a lot of retirees. There are certain themes that come up, and, and one of those themes, uh, not for everybody, but for a lot, is they don't tend to spend their money, right? So now if I imagine myself, you know, I have those blog posts where I'm going to have a certain amount of money saved, and then I can really live it up in retirement, right? I'm going to live on, just use an example, you know, $50,000 a year for the opportunity to spend $100,000 a year in retirement, and wouldn't that be great? So what I'm finding now working with those retirees is they still live on 50000 you know, right? Yeah. In, in a lot of cases, for whatever reason, if it's those money critics, if it's the uh, just never exercising those spending muscles throughout their lifetime and always just getting used to living on 50000 they can't bring themselves to do it, right? And so I look at that and I say, well, I don't want that. If I want to just watch the numbers go up on a spreadsheet so that I have the ability to live this life when I'm 60, well, I'm already seeing by example that they're not doing it. And so what it would look like if we just spent like 75 all throughout our lifetime instead of going from 50 to 100 in retirement, what if we just did 75 throughout and sort of balanced out the spending and saving versus sort of going to the extreme uh, either way, right? I mean, you could go either way. You could go the other way too. You know, we can go total, you know, you only live once uh, mentality and, and spend it all and not save anything. And I don't, I don't think that that's prudent. But is there a happy balance there on the, you know, the teeter-totter and the seesaw that can get you what I call maximizing your life enjoyment, right? So you're not sacrificing so much in those early years for the chance to live it up. Because we don't know, right? Tomorrow's never promised. And we might not be able to or we might not want to live the kind of life that we wish we were living now. Really, really interesting. Uh, I mean, you're making this point of, yeah, we only have the present and, you know, the present, Rob, as of many of us, feel good to have an awareness tomorrow's taken care of, but we enjoy the rare opportunities we get to buy a $10 Coke and not feel so guilty. And I think it's yeah. so interesting. Believe me, I, a- I, felt, I felt guilty about that, but, uh, yeah. but, we, but, I, but I did say yes. Yeah. Maximizing life enjoyment or joyment. Enjoyment or joy? Enjoyment. 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 What's your definition for that? I, I would say, you know, I'm a big fan of Fred Vitisse's work, right? So he's written The Rule of 30, which sort of talked to, in economist speak, and Fred, Fred is an actuary, but to an economist speak, it's called consumption smoothing, right? It's like, 
I want to live at the same lifestyle I consume at the same rate. So in my early years, I'm not going to save as much, right? Because I got all these competing priorities, right? I got the mortgage and I've got daycare and, and all this stuff. And then later on, I'm going to have more cash flow, right? Maybe the mortgage is paid off, kids are out of the house, and I'll ramp up my savings then so that I can maintain a somewhat stable uh, standard of living throughout that entire time. And so economists call that consumption smoothing. I find that quite dry. And so I call what I try to call it is exactly what I tried to explain about the 50,000 and the 100,000. Could we not balance that out to be 75 throughout your lifetime? I call that maximizing your life enjoyment, right? So that way you're not dying with $5 million when you're 95 years old. You're not sacrificing in your 30s to put away so much money so that you can enjoy, you know, a someday maybe luxurious retirement. You're spending what you need to live the kind of life you want to live and making sure that you're enjoying life now and that you're going to be able to maintain at least the same standard of living in retirement. I think it's it's so clear that through all the journaling and I, uh, the blog, I call that, I'm thinking that in journaling, but the reflection that you do in the, the blog, it's helped you really understand that, hey, I don't like cars. I want to be able to have some security by saving, but I'm starting to realize that I want to maximize my life enjoyment. I just get the sense that through your reflecting and pausing and thinking, this blog is really I mean, you started out with documenting how to save a certain amount in your RSP, TFSA, and what your pension might look like, which I feel like you might not even have that because you quit that job. But um, while that is so important, but it, I think it's opened up a, a whole new life that you're, you're describing here because I don't know if Rob in 2010 was thinking about maximizing life enjoyment. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, the blog has been life-changing in so many ways. You're right, it's the self-reflection you're learning about yourself as you put your thoughts out there, right? And as I said, I've been very fortunate to have a lot of smart readers, but also what I consider peers, right? Other financial advisors or, or bloggers or experts in the industry. Right now on, on Twitter, we sort of call that FinTwit, right? It's a similar community now, but it existed back then with bloggers and, and other writers and advisors, they were helpful enough to reach out to me. And, and you know what? They would, you know, gently correct me if I was wrong about something, right? That I'm like confidently putting out there that was gospel. They were like, oh, that's not actually quite right. Never in a mean spirited way, right? I've learned so much from, you know, that, that group of, of sort of online, I guess, collaborators and, and in that financial community. And so just been really, really fortunate. And so what I think has been one of my strengths though, and I think you're sort of picking up on this as you've read through the archives, is that I've adapted, right? It's not, I'm not the same person I was in, in 2010. And that's why I am able to sort of talk about this now, this sort of rich life is that I'm growing, right? And I, I, don't, I know I don't know all the answers. I, I just, you know, try to make the best decisions with the information I have. And when I get new information that uh, maybe contradicts something that I believed in, right, I, I, I take that, right, I take that and, and reflect on it. And I think that has uh, really come through in, in my writing. And, and I really believe, that, you know, lately since the work I've been doing with my financial planning clients, uh, that's really shaped how I view my money, right? Because I get the inside, inside view of, of people and how they manage their money. And I could be like, I like that. I don't like that. 
right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't want to end up like that. Not to say you know, people have reasons for, you know, wanting to amass a certain amount of money or, or the way they spend, right? I'm not there to judge. I'm just trying to apply it to my own situation and say, nah, that works for me. This one, maybe not so much. Yeah, I definitely sense this curiosity that you have. You know, we, we were kind of really talking about this ever-changing dynamic journey. I, I'm, I'm just thinking of, I don't sail, but I can imagine if you're sailing in the ocean, you might have a certain destination that might be south and you might be hell-bent that you got to get there, but I've seen them on the internet. The waves get big out there. Uh, but the, we have to course correct and change your direction. And I, I really think that you're articulating a story here that shows the importance of, yes, having goals, like having these retirement goals, but being open and curious to the new courses that might lead us down different paths and really letting go of those rigid desired outcomes. And I, I speak from experience on this one is that sometimes they get a so narrow focus that we forget to really see the uh, unfolding a life happen around us where we're like, no to the Coke. And we regret <laughs> that for the rest of our lives. Well, and often, Sean, I see that I was going to say, I see this also when I do planning for my younger clients is that I do a plan and it sure it has like a projection of how their life's going to unfold. But I, I make sure to tell them like, life is not going to happen exactly like <laughs> yeah. this, right? Like, it's planning, not plans, right? This yeah. is not set in stone. This is, you know, this is the version of you. I say, what you're trying to do is give future you options, right? So that when you come back to me in five years or in 10 years, you've advanced, you've grown as a person, you're going to have different goals. Absolutely, you're going to have different goals. Like how many 30-somethings are like, I'm never going to retire. We'll talk to them when they're 50 and they'll be like, yeah, I'm kind of ready to retire, (laughs) right? It's like, you know, this is ever evolving. You're exactly right. And we have to course correct. We have to adapt to, you know, new environment and know that like 50-year-old Rob's going to be different than 40-year-old Rob and he's going to have different goals. And so then I need to do this all over again and and have that reflection. I think it was... um... Carl Richards in The Behavior Gap, where he said a financial plan is a fictional narrative of the future. Yes, 100% agree. I I think your clients would really probably reflect back what we're talking about in this conversation is the the not holding so tight gripped to our desired outcomes and letting those opportunities come where we can learn and see things in a new way. In the exercises, another one was if you were to write a book about your relationship with money, what would you call it? Can you touch on the title you chose? And specifically, there's two words that I'm interested in. And I think the audience will understand why, but I want to hear why you chose those words. From frugal to freedom. Yeah, just as I was thinking about that, you know, those initial money stories from childhood and into my 20s, which really shaped sort of my late 20s to early 30s where I was. For a goal, as I said, you know, I wanted to count those dollars going up because I did not want to go back into uh, a credit card debt or or have to visit a, a food bank. And so there's the frugal part. But then, you know, you know, lucky enough to be successful in um, you know my 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 career and having a, a beautiful family to to enjoy this uh, adventure with. And that's where the freedom comes into play. So, like I talked about that 32 day trip we took to the UK. That changed my life. We, I quit my job like two months after that. And something that I was just doing on the side as a passion project, right? The blog and the financial planning became my business. My wife and I work in it full time now. And we're home when my kids are home from school. And I'm here when my kids go off to school. 
you know, we can travel sort of whenever their, their school allows it, their school schedule allows it, and we can sort of afford to put them in to extracurriculars that they want to do. They're really into dance right now. So, you know, one's dancing like every day during the week. Yeah, and so, and I'm driving it, right? I'm chauffeur dad during the, the evenings, uh, weekday evenings. And, and I love it because that's freedom to me. It's, it's, I can be at home, I can be with my wife and work on this business and grow it. I'm home for my kids when they need me. We can take them around to their activities. We can go out and travel and take them on adventures. Uh, like there's the freedom part of it. You know, I have to pinch myself sometimes to think, you know, that this is real. And maybe that's that inner critic coming to say, hey, you know, you're living in a fantasy world. No, it is reality, right? If that was the book, it would be, that's how it would unfold, is that sort of frugality mindset to a little more uh, freeing and, and, and that freedom. If your family, your wife and your kids, which I, I get the sense how much they're, they're important to you. I, I read that you get to work with you, but you said your best friend, your wife every day at home. I know if we were talking to Edmonton, you get to go for walks with your fan, your kids, your dog, I believe, like conversations with your family. But if they wrote the foreword to From Frugal to Freedom, what do you think they would say that meant to them? Wow. Like, you know, again, as I reflect back on my own childhood and how, how that shapes your views on money and, and everything going forward, what I hope is that they say, you know, my, my parents were there for me, right? They were there to support and encourage me. It meant the world because, you know, while maybe my friends were reading about the Renaissance, I got to go to Italy and I got to um, visit the Sistine Chapel and look at the Statue of David. And, you know, they got to have experiences that maybe they could only have dreamt about or, or read about. And I would think that they would be really uh, appreciative of that, uh, of being able to do that. And that that didn't, that they never really had to, you know, have those fears that I had, you know, where, you know, my, my dad was in between jobs or, you know, we had those Christmases that maybe weren't as, as plentiful as others. They never got to experience that. You know, I think every parent wants their kids to have a better upbringing and, and, and go on to do better things than they did. And, and that's all we're trying to provide for them. So I, I hope that they would reflect on that and, and think that they had those opportunities and, and are grateful for them. I can imagine they do in their, in their book that they might write as a sequel. I think theirs might start out with going to see Taylor Swift in Switzerland next summer. But, oh my uh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, you know, get to see uh, your favorite entertainer at the height of her powers, right? So I think we talked in Edmonton. I know you're a big concert fan, a big music fan. And, you know, I, I, I had one memory of like being at 17 and Metallica was coming to Calgary. And this was like the height of their fame. You know, this was before the internet. So before you could click on Ticketmaster and get tickets or whatever. So we like literally camped overnight to get those tickets. And it was like the greatest show of my life. I can only hope this is like that. This is like that for them to get to see someone and not on their rendezvous tour or their encore tour when they're, you know, 60 years old playing the, playing the clubs, the height of their powers on an international tour. That's just going to coincide with a trip that we were going to do anyways. And we thought, so you know what, let's just see if we can map uh, match up or align a date with where she's playing. And uh, Zurich of all places uh, worked in. <laughs> so yeah, that's next summer. So we're really excited for that. I'm certain it will be a, enjoyable experience and I, I i would think you and crank had a conversation and i'm glad that you talked some sense not sense I'm, I'm glad he agreed 
He was hovering over the the my mouse hand before I clicked those tickets uh, yeah. for sure, right? Like uh, we know how much you know concerts are costing these days. Mm. Um, but you know, again, I, I kind of go back to if it you know costs a couple thousand dollars, right, for four of us to go, and I do my own financial planning projections, and I'm going to have I don't know a million dollars when I'm 90 years old, right? Like, which one of those would I rather have? I agree. I mean, those spectacular moments, like you're talking about Metallica now, you're 17 years old. I mean, experiences are who we are. They shape, like, we're, our lives are an accumulation of those experiences. So, Absolutely. As we come to an end here, 10 years ago, or over 10 years ago, you wrote on one of your first blog entries. I'm, I'm going to read what you wrote here. It was, you were talking about why you're starting this blog. I now feel in control of my financial future, which is the first step in what will be an exciting adventure over the next decade. I want to share my experiences so that hopefully the younger readers learn from my mistakes and get started earlier towards their own financial freedom. I thought it was really neat that you used the word financial freedom and now you're talking about from frugal to freedom. Hearing that, what do you think? Like, do you, I feel like you just got to give yourself a pat on the back and be like, wow, Rob, <laughs> look what we did. Right? No, I did. I guess uh, I had no idea, obviously, how the blog would turn out. Yeah. It was life changing. As I said, I had no idea I'd still be writing it 14 years later. You know, even with the rise of TikTok and YouTube and all that, uh, there are still people that read. And so I'm grateful for that. But interestingly, if you've gone back through the archives, you'll know that I had a, I had a 10 year goal to go to Ireland and, and Scotland. And that was in 20, oh, that was 2010. And we did it in 2019. And so, you know, I did have, I, 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 you know, I'm thinking about this uh, post you just read. Maybe there was a vision there that, uh, you know, we, uh, yes, you sort of go through shortcuts and, and, uh, and different crossroads along the way, but yeah, it was, it was there. It was the importance of sort of writing things down and goal setting and yeah, these uh, things sort of transpired as just as I foretold back in 2010. Yeah, I thought it was super interesting then. Yeah. A question I've asked everybody, and we maybe ducked in and out of your answer, and that's okay. But let's now imagine you're at end of life. However old you are, you're looking back, reflecting, which seems to be a theme to this, at your life. And you said, I did it. I lived a good life. And you decide to write a letter to your children's children on what you learned to have, or what you learned about having a happy and healthy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter? or in your case, blog post? You need to have a vision, right? And, and I, I think one thing that holds a lot of people back is they don't articulate or think about their their goals and what they want to do more so than just a month or maybe a year ahead, right? Like I think back to when I was in my 20s, as I talked about earlier, and it was just like when that raise kicks in or when I get my tax refund, right? Then it'll all work out. I never thought much beyond that. And it wasn't until I started the blog, I started actually thinking about short, long, or short medium and long-term goals and just look at how that had transpired for me, right? So when, when I'm sort of talking to my children's children, I guess I would say, you know, what is your vision? What do you want to do, right? I always tell my clients, I want to show you what's possible, right? Let's start there. Not uh, show me the work until I'm 70 and you know survive on a you know a meager existence. I want to know what's possible, and and with that comes a vision, right? So I hope that at that point in my life, I'm I'm sort of talking about things that have transpired in my own life, and that I that I sort of walk the talk. 
you know, we have a, a crazy vision of uh, potentially living in Scotland one day, right? Maybe when the kids are done school. And we want to make that a reality, right? And so, uh, you know, but we have that vision and then there's the courage, right? So that's what I talk about as well. And has had a vision and have goals about what you want to do in your life, right? I think it's a big tragedy if you just sort of stay, always stay in the town you grew up in and, you know, you never really go outside of your own borders, have a vision of what you want to do with your life and then have the courage, I guess, and haven't used that word in this, uh, in, in this podcast yet, but have the courage to act on that vision, right? And so when I talk about that, it's, you know, I quit my job, right? That was a big leap of faith, right? This is a secure public sector defined benefit pension, you know, where I had sort of a nice hobby side hustle, right? I could have done that for 20 years and 30 years and been really happy, but not to this extent. Right. So have the courage to sort of take a leap and see your vision through. And you know what I love, Sean, when I tell my, I tell my clients I want to show them what's possible is uh, when I hear some of these stories, right? Like I helped one who wanted to leave, you know, the big city and uh, move to Greece and live on an olive farm and basically like live on like $15,000 a year. But she's living on this olive farm, just living her best life in, in Greece others that want a snowbird or others that are young and want to take those gap year type things where they can go on a sabbatical for a year and just take time off of work. Like people are doing amazing things. And, and that's what I would hope for my own children and my children's children is that, you know, they think about their vision about how they, what they enjoy, what they're passionate about, and then take the courage to at least try, right. At least try to live that life. Rob, so insightful. I mean, uh, yeah. I appreciate that answer. I, I'm listening to you, but I got my own wheels turning in my own head. And that's what's so <laughs> powerful about the way you tell stories is you're relatable, like we said at the beginning. So we have, or you have been writing a song this entire time. We have Rudhub on the podcast. If Rudhub, you're still with us because Rudhub has been having some internet troubles out in Oahu, Hawaii. Hey, aloha. Oh, we hear some Rudhubs. So, <laughs> Hello. Rob, Rudhub is a great friend of mine. And, you know, we've been able to bring two worlds together, this idea of money stories and music. Rudhub has this ability to listen to the words, not, sorry, not just the words, but the messages underneath the words and put it into a, a poetic song. So he's done that for us today. Oh on my the gosh. spot, as you can see, on the spot. Hey, aloha. Um, yeah, thanks, Rob. Thanks, thanks for sharing your story. It's like surfing. We don't know where the where this story or this song is going to take it. It's collaboration. The song didn't exist before what we're about to go into. And uh, here it is. Crank, it comes with his fear. To 
question everything you hold dear. He told you not to trust the here and now, but his voice is just an echo. Yeah, the wisdom in the comments keeps you on the ball. Sometimes one size does not fit all. Had you listened to that voice, you would have had no choice. Now your life is how you spend it, how you save it and defend it. So the simple strategy to employ. Maximize the life that you enjoy. Oh, and find yourself your balancing act. Now you're dancing in the center. Yeah, the wisdom in the comments. They keep you on the ball. But sometimes one size does not fit all. Oh, yeah. Frugal to freedom, you respond to the call. Sometimes one size does not fit all. Oh, now frugal to freedom, yeah, you respond to that call. That was incredible. So good. Oh, Rudolph, I don't know how you do it. Every time. Yeah, that song didn't exist until couple minutes ago because of like what we all did together. I love it. Awesome. Uh, Thanks Rob for sharing that story. Like every time we do one of these, I learn something about myself and like these reflections and like be able to then distill it into like something musical. Like to, it's just, uh, well, it's so cool. We love doing it. Yeah. You got your own pocket sized theme song. I love it. Well, Rudab, thank you. As always, and Rob, now, um, you know, you talked about lining up for Metallica, going to see Taylor Swift. Now we got, uh, wait, what's this, what's this called, Rudab? Or maybe Rob needs to name it. Or Frugal to Freedom, right? Frugal to Freedom, there. Now you got your own hit single. Thank uh, you so yes. much, Rob, for, for joining, sharing your story. I know at times it could be easier to tell people what to do. But I think your theme is this relatableness, and you did that today. So thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated Effort podcast. If you are still listening, perhaps that means you enjoyed this episode. If that's the case, please support the show in one of two ways or both. Number one, you can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. And number two, you can share this episode with a family, friend, or colleague, or anyone who you think would enjoy this episode. Speaking of this episode, if you found this one interesting, I highly suggest you go back and check out episode number 145 with Benjamin Felix and Cameron Passmore, who are the voices behind the Rational Reminder podcast, as we explored their story similar to what we did with Rob. Until next week, have yourself a great one. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. Now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind in the sea